The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Tuesday, May 28th, 2019. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. There are some who say Donald Trump, President Trump, wants impeachment and that he's calling for it. But I ask, is he like Br'er Rabbit, all crafty and wise? Or is he like Gollum? Be careful what you desire. The question I have isn't, what does Donald Trump want? It's, what should we want? Now, there are good reasons to impeach Donald Trump. I will list one. He committed numerous impeachable acts. But the calculation of whether or not to do it is harder than simply getting in touch with your feelings about justice and accountability. Yes, there may well be a yearning deep within the breast of every lover of democracy and decency to impeach the man, but deep yearnings and smart tactics aren't the same things. This is why the reluctance to impeach on the part of House Democrats, has been portrayed as craven, cowardly, weak, and for fear of being reckless, being horribly feckless. Yes, the Democrats have no feck. In truth, I think the calculation to impeach should be just that, a calculation. Emotion shouldn't overwhelm what needs to be very carefully considered. And I think there should be one question the Democrats need to answer. It's this, whose hand will be on the Bible swearing to protect the Constitution on January 20th, 2021? Democrats need to take the course of action that best guarantees that that person will not be Donald Trump. And if anyone tells you there's any other consideration, like we've got to protect the Constitution, that person is wrong. He could be free or she could be freely ignored. So how do you decide? How do you decide what's the best way to guarantee that someone besides Donald Trump is swearing on that Bible? I have invented a tool. It is called the Trump Loose Impeachment Evaluator Statistic. Its acronym is Trump Lies, L-I-E-S. Here's how it goes. Take the odds of Trump getting a second term. What do you think those odds are? Just hold that number for yourself. And now take the odds of a conviction in the Senate. Remember, two-thirds vote, impeachment ruled by the House, passed on to the Senate. So you've got the odds of a Trump second term plus the odds of conviction. Add them together. They have to be equal to or greater than 100% to go forth with impeachment. If those two odds are below 100%, it is wrong to bring impeachment proceedings. The formula is not perfect. It's not actually meant to be exact. See the L in lies. It stands for loose, loose impeachment evaluator statistic. But it's a useful tool that offers a structured framework for working out this decision. The author Stephen Johnson was on the show, and he was talking about decision-making months and months ago. And it was was a book called Farsightedness. And there were such good lessons there. At one point, he talked about the linear value modeling, where you map your decision, you explore alternatives, you build a predictive model of outcomes, you write a list of your values. Now, my values are no President Trump in 2021. Yours might be to enforce some purposefully vague clause in the Constitution. The point is this. We can all agree that when it comes to the big decisions, we should be careful and meticulous and plan. And yet, when it comes to this biggest civic decision of all, impeachment, the thinking is more like, you guys are spineless toads. You're getting punked by Trump. This is why I tell you to consult with lies. Trump lies. The loose impeachment evaluator statistic. 
It's just a more sound way of making a decision. I will now tell you, I will now tell you my Trump lies calculation. I don't see any evidence that Trump's re-election chances are lower than 40 or above 60. So I'm going to put it in the 40 to 60 range. You might say, that's a pretty wide range. It doesn't matter because I also don't see any chance of conviction in the Senate above 20%, knowing what we know now. So if you take even the upper bound of Trump's re-election chances, 60%, and you add it to the 20% chance of conviction, my Trump lies number is well below 100, well below the trigger for impeachment. This is the thinking, if not the exact method, of Nancy Pelosi. I've not got her the Trump lies statistic just yet. Pelosi's reluctance to impeach has certainly frustrated many fed up Trump opponents. It's apparently annoying every former federal prosecutor who isn't currently in the administration or lost in Hawaii. But I do believe, knowing the near impossibility of securing a conviction in the Senate, that impeachment should not be considered an act of bravery. Rather, we should look at it like not impeaching is an act of self-control and a strenuous one at that. On the show today, I spiel about the question put forth by Donald Trump. Can a black person ever support a supporter of the 1994 crime bill? Here is a spoiler to my spiel. In 1994, almost all the black elected officials supported the 1994 crime bill. But first, let us take you to 1868, a simpler time. If by simpler you mean a nation torn asunder, a leader assassinated, the coalition of governance topsy-turvy, a president pretty much ignoring Congress, but also no Twitter. Would you take the trade? You might, but don't answer until you listen to Brenda Wineapple talking about her new book, The Impeachers. Hey, listener, you may have heard via your earbuds, car stereo, smart speaker, or immersive shower sound system that podcasts are the future. We at Slate think so, too, which is why we are hosting Slate Day in New York City on Saturday, June 8th. The day starts with a performance by Ms. Cracker of RuPaul's Drag Race fame. We've got pop culture trivia where you can join Slate's own writers, a play date for kids organized by our parenting podcast, Mom and Dad Are Fighting and You Know Hit Parade, that podcast about the biggest hits in pop and music. They are going to have a dance party. Of course, we will have panels too, including mine, titled The Art of Podcasting with Mike Pesca. And these guests will include Manoush Zamarodi of ZigZag and Adam Davidson, who founded Planet Money, now has started his new podcasting venture with Sony. For tickets to this event, go to slate.com slash live. We'll see you on Saturday, June 8th. President Andrew Johnson took office by essentially tongue-kissing the Bible, and things went down from there. I will read a passage from the new fantastic book by Brenda Wineapple called The Impeachers, The Trial of Andrew Johnson and the Dream of a Just Nation. Tell me if this seems familiar. 
The moral verdict against Andrew Johnson had already been rendered. Johnson had endorsed rebels and rebel legislature. He'd fired competent people. He'd abused the pardoning privilege. He'd blocked or subverted civil rights legislation, and he was obstructing ratification of the 14th Amendment. Okay, we can also add, and it's not in that passage, he stood idly by as race-related riots took lives in large South American cities. The question remained, had the president committed illegal acts and hence demonstrably impeachable ones? That Mm -hmm. is the center of the Mm -hmm. impeachers. And Brenda Wineapple is here. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for inviting me. So it's impossible not to read this (laughs) as maybe as all great history does prove to be impossible to read without thinking about today's events. But it's especially impossible to read this. Yet I have to know, when did you start it? I actually started this book six years ago, deep in the Obama administration, when people wondered why I was writing about the impeachment of Andrew Johnson. It was the most remote, dusty topic that many thought that I could think of. Now, um, people think I'm brilliant and prescient. By the time you were putting the finishing touches... Uh, on it was Trump president? Yes, definitely. Do you think that affected anything in the book? Well, you know, I mean, my answer is no, and I know it will be hard for people to believe because none of us lives in a vacuum, and the anxiety that we all experience is, you know, it's not daily, it's hourly, Mm -hmm. So, and I'm experiencing it, but there's a way in which when I concentrate and I put myself back in the 19th century. To a certain extent, for me personally, it's a kind of escape. Yeah. So while, of course, I know what's going on, um, first of all, I made a conscious decision not to deal with the present, and that was before there was a Trump. I knew I wasn't going to talk about Clinton, you know, except in passing at yes. the end of the book. I knew I wasn't going to talk about Nixon, same thing. And of course, I wasn't going to talk about Trump. When I was finishing the book, there was enough about Johnson and about that period to compel me to stay focused. So when he becomes president, when Lincoln is assassinated, what did his fellow politicians, America, what the country, what did they think of him? What did they think we could expect out of Andrew Johnson? Well, at first they thought he was going to be wonderful. Um, the, the South had a, a champion, it seemed like. And in the North, he'd been a war Democrat. He stood for the Union. And during the war, he, would, he was noted for saying treason is a crime and it must be punished. So everyone was very hopeful. And also, I think, they're very hopeful because they want to be hopeful. It's after a presidential assassination. That never happened before. But he soon exposes himself in personal decisions, but in some large policy stances as being not just inadequate to the moment, but really um, gumming up the work, standing athwart the agenda of the radical, what we call, what were called the radical Republicans, but now we know to be the individuals on the right side of history who saw the Civil War ended. Now we must actually and in fact eradicate slavery. Exactly. Johnson had no interest in this, really. No, I mean, he's he's fine if... You know, he had said toward the end of the war, okay, if we can save the Union and have to get rid of slavery, I'll put up with it. In other words, you know, if that's the cost for ending the Union, whereas the people who were called radicals or today, as you say, right side of history, those are the people who said, no, we don't just end slavery. We get rid of its effects. We make 
make sure that the people who are enslaved have an equal opportunity and are treated like human beings, which they are. So in that sense, they're completely polar opposites to one another. So before we get to the Tenure of Office Act, which (laughs) is the thing that he was, well, most of the thing he was impeached impeached Mm on, Mm -hmm. what else did he do that was unpresidential or possibly criminal? Well, um, the criminality is is a kind well, of murky. Let's call it a high crime and misdemeanor. Yeah, <laughs> yeah or, or you know, well, first of all, he's a, he's abusing Congress. Um, he's so angry at the Republicans who are opposing him that he begins to basically call for their execution. He says, "Hang Thaddeus Stevens is one of them. Hang Charles Sumner." So he he incites the mob that goes to these rallies, basically, and he's one of them, mm-hmm. and he believes that. So it's abusive, but then it's also abuse of power, because once he's in office, he takes the oath of office in April, Congress is is in recess. It's not supposed to meet till December, and he won't call a special session to deal with the effect of war, which is yeah. right there, yeah. is a usurpation of the function of Congress, the legislative branch. So he's, he's taking the executive branch, and he's making that all-powerful, which is horrifying that. And then he obstructs justice. What he's doing is once certain laws are passed or... or, or Congress tries to pass laws like civil rights legislation that he vetoes it. So he is pushing back at Congress. And then he goes out and he basically tries to um, impede the ratification of the 14th Amendment. He doesn't want it passed by the states. And And he talks to people in various legislatures and he says, don't pass it, don't pass it, which is dreadful when you think about it. So for all this... Yeah. Without this thing called the Tenure of Office Act, he might not have been impeached. Well, that's true. Yeah. You know, so tell and, us about what that act is and what were the details. Yeah, the details of that act. The act was was commonly understood later, you know, in the tw- early 20th century, late 19th century, as a way to ensnare Johnson. It wasn't at all. The Tenure of Office Act was passed, and it is dubious, of dubious mm-hmm. constitutionality, but it was passed to protect people, particularly in the cabinet. And so what it stipulated is that anyone who had been appointed with the advice and consent of Congress could not be fired without the advice and consent of Congress. So that meant that the Senate, in other words, would have to okay the firing of an Edwin Stanton. And they weren't going to do that. Edwin Stanton, Secretary of War, the man Lincoln called Mars. He called him Mars. Yeah. And the many most, people... Pretty much the most important American after Lincoln's assassination. Abso- well, absolutely, yeah. because yeah. Grant is more or less on the sidelines, right. you know, because he's not fighting anymore. Stanton was still in office. He was still in the cabinet. And Lincoln didn't want to let him go in 64 when he wanted to retire. The guy's getting tired. And he stayed in to oversee the transition. And then the radicals didn't want him to leave either because he was protecting the military. And it was important to protect the military because Congress eventually passed what were known as Reconstruction Laws. And the military was to stay in the South to help register and protect black men and 
white loyalist at the polls. And Johnson didn't want that. He didn't want these laws to take effect. So he was firing and changing people in the military to get his own cronies in, for want of a better word. So the Tenure of Office Act, and the short version, is passed to protect people like Stanton. And I think Congress almost naively, in retrospect, but Congress didn't expect Johnson to violate it, you mm-hmm. know? I mean, that is really an abrogation of the law. And, of course, Johnson violated it. Right. And that created the actual cause, the technical cause for impeachment, because now you could say, aha, this is a big deal. So stipulating that we had never gone through impeachment before, it was unclear what, con- it's still unclear what yeah, constitutes a high crime misdemeanor. But I think you make the good case, and I think Thaddeus Stevens, who was perhaps the most important member of the House of Representatives at the time, thought this too, that the impeachers in the House made a mistake. It was too narrow. It was too much based on this letter of the law. And they should have just swung for the fences and listed <laughs> everything he did to not uphold his oath of office in yes, general. that was Stephen's point of view. Yeah. And it was a point of view that that wasn't the dominant point of view. Stevens was the most, as you said, the most important person in the House. He had been for a very, very long time. He was so annoyed at the sort of legalistic uh, articles of impeachment that he insisted that the 10th and particularly the 11th article were more broadly worded and really did have to do with obstruction, abuse of power, right. you know, degradation of Congress. So that's what I was going to ask yeah. you. A lot hinged on that 11th, was, which was, here are a bunch of specific things. The 11th then became the catch-all. Right. Does that rebut the argument that the one I just made, that <laughs> the impeachers made a mistake. I mean, if the Senate wanted to, they could have they could have convicted mm-hmm. based on just the 11th and he'd have been out of office he as much been, as if they had convicted on all of them. Yeah, that's right. And that's why they put the 11th up first. Mm-hmm. They decided the the what they call managers, people prosecuting in the house, people prosecuting um I mean, in the Senate, but they're the representatives. They had to invent that whole process. Well, that's another interesting thing, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because there's no blueprint for right. it. You know, there's there's you know no map. So and 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 they Nixon in, would innovated. have and Clinton did essentially use the man, man, manager yeah. process, which is interesting because if people are talking about impeachment today, they really should go back, you yeah. know, and and think about what happened in Johnson because it was the first full blown impeachment that really had to do with the presidential office and the dignity of the presidential office and and what a president is supposed to be and what the balance of power is in that particular case. But to go back to your question, mm-hmm. did they, what should they have done? You know, that it's hard to know because there were other issues involved in Johnson's acquittal. One had to do with the fact that that Republicans, particularly moderates, wanted Grant to be president. So they really didn't want to get too involved in impeachment because it might mean that a radical would succeed Johnson and make it harder for Grant to win the presidency. Right. We should point out that Johnson had no vice president. So the speaker pro tem of the uh, Senate, Meade, who was... Wade. Wade. That's okay. Wade. Is waiting in line. And he was a very, very... 
divisive, controversial figure. figure. Yes, yes. yes. I mean, his monetary policies. He actually, think of this, thought women should vote. That's how controversial (laughs) he was. (laughs) Imagine that. Yeah, yeah. And he so, believed in what greenbacks? Greenbacks. That was the <laughs> currency. He went, you know, paper money. Crazy. You know, yeah. So yeah. you know, so so these people who were considered fanatics radical, were radical. So, <laughs> so ahead of their time. So nobody wanted to touch Wade. So that was a consideration. This is apart from legal and moral issues. And the other consideration had to do with money. So as much as there are resonances, there was one or two things that were entirely absent. So mm-hmm. one was polling. If the if the people <laughs> that, yeah. if the politicians then could have had a sense about what the public said it wanted, do you think anything would have changed? I don't really think so. Johnson was a Democrat. This is how I would put it in that case, and he was shocked that the party didn't nominate him for the '68 convention because he thought he did everything they wanted. This is how out of touch he was. Johnson didn't have many allies. Um, The presidential office and the idea of impeaching someone was hard for several moderates to swallow, regardless of bribes or anything like that. How do you think how this played out affected the grand presidency, reconstruction, um, the rest of the century? I think that the effects, you know... I'm of two minds about it. On the one hand, I think the effects were devastating because it seems to me that, as I wrote, that, you know, the country was at a crossroads. And had Johnson been different, and if Johnson had been gotten rid of, in a sense, that it was very possible for people like Wade or Sumner or, and there are many others who are in Congress and outside of it, too, you know, certainly, um, certainly black activists, you know, and um, the clergy, um, who really could have moved the country in a direction that would have been toward more equality, more toward the, you know, the values that were enshrined in the Declaration of Independence without sounding too kind of, you know, highfalutin about it. But that's what they really believed. So I think it was devastating. By the same token, did it affect Grant? And no, I don't really think it did. I mean, in a certain sense, Grant slogan, his political slogan was let us have peace. So he could could get into the presidency by promising a a calmer, less controversial demeanor. And and that's in a sense what he tried to provide and did. And and he got rid of the Klan for a while. But, you know, but then again, Johnson had allowed it to to raise its ugly head. So you have to get rid of something that shouldn't have been there in the first right. place. People people dismissed the Klan as a myth yes. during this time. They said that the people they said that the radicals are just making it up, you know, it's just kind of they're just trying to incite uh fear. Mhm. Scare old ladies in their teacups is yeah. what they say. Yeah, yeah. I, I, wrote, I was thinking of Kaiser Sozi, a spook story for, yeah, for us to exactly. tell our kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The name of the book is The Impeachers, The Trial of Andrew Johnson and the Dream of a Just Nation. The author of the book and my guest has been Brenda Wineapple. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And now the spiel. Yesterday, President Trump tweeted, Super predator was the term associated with the 1994 crime bill that sleepy Joe Biden was so heavily involved in passing. 
That was a dark period in American history. But has Sleepy Joe apologized? No. He also tweeted, anyone associated with the 1994 crime bill will not have a chance of being elected. In particular, African-Americans will not be able to vote for you. The responses to these tweets, which are actually a little more cogent than normal, were of the you of all people variety, pointing out that Trump has had a horrible record on criminal justice and forgiveness and being right in the Central Park Five, etc. But Trump won't be shamed. Trump will never be shamed. Trump has even been credited with wisely raising this issue. Okay, so here's what I'm going to do. I am inserting my gloved hand, and by gloved, I mean one of those radioactive, isotope, super industrial, Homer Simpson handling type gloves, all right? I am removing Donald Trump from this discussion. So let's just talk about the crime bill and black people. I know in the current imagination, the crime bill, I know in the current imagination, the 1994 crime bill set in motion the trend of over-incarceration, was passed over the objections of African-Americans, and didn't even reduce crime. I want you to know none of those things are true. Incarceration nearly tripled from 1980 to 1994. After the crime bill funded more prisons, uh, prison population, the prison population as a percentage of society did go up 15, 20%, but almost all the rise predated the crime bill. And it did bring down crimes. More cops, more people in prison. Of course, it's going to bring down crimes. What are the costs? That's a valid question. That's one we're rightly grappling with now. But it did have the desired effect. No good criminologist would say crime came down just because of the crime bill. But every good criminologist, including those I've interviewed, would say incarceration and policing, of course, had some effect on crime. That is not what I want to talk about. What I want to talk about is the notion that if you are black, you cannot support Joe Biden because Joe Biden is the crime bill and the crime bill is to be loathed by all black people. Now let's get into the history. A significant number of members of the Congressional Black Caucus of 1994 opposed the crime bill, but more than twice as many supported it. There is a provision, the racial justice provision, that all members of the CBC badly wanted included in the bill. And by all accounts, Bill Clinton wanted it included in the bill, just not as badly. Twelve members of the Black Caucus wound up voting against the crime bill as a result of the lack of this racial justice provision, which, my opinion, absolutely should have been in the crime bill, but it wasn't. And as a result, 12 of the 38 members of the CBC voted against it. Still, Black leaders of today question the extent to which we should credit the 26 who voted yes as really wanting to vote yes, as really representing the real wishes of the African-American community. In 2016, the New York Times asked in an op-ed, did blacks really endorse the 1994 crime bill? I will tell you the answer. It is yes. It is yes, they did. Though the authors, three professors of history or African-American studies from three different Ivy League universities, argue otherwise, they say, quote, punitive crime policy is a result of a process of selectively hearing black voices on the question of crime. All right, let's ask which voices were selected to be heard. Public opinion polling shows that among white and black respondents, crime was the number one concern of the year. 
the number one issue among voters was crime. So black people's voices were saying, we want a bill to address crime. As I've said, more than two-thirds of the Congressional Black Caucus supported the bill, including some of the most liberal members of the caucus, like Cynthia McKinney, representative from Georgia. Here she is speaking from the grounds of the Capitol in 1994. I am particularly insulted that Newt Gingrich would run for the Speaker of the House, Speakership of the House, on the fears and the pain of the American people. We have got to pass this crime bill. This is what the American people want. And I am just happy to be a part of the coalition that's going to deliver it to the American people. In 1994, there was one African-American senator, Carol Mosley Braun of Illinois. She voted for the crime bill. There were no black senators in America because America is a racist country. But Douglas Wilder, whose term as governor of Virginia had ended nine months prior to the crime bill's passage, supported it. Then there were the mayors. I researched the mayors of every U.S. city with a population above 400,000. Denver's Wellington Webb urged Bill Clinton to pass the crime bill. It's our sense as mayors and police chiefs across this country that the biggest issue in America today is dealing with the issue of crime and, and violence. And that we are calling on the President of the United States to give the same amount of leadership, the same amount of energy to addressing this issue as he's done on, successfully on NAFTA, the same as uh, the energy going into health care and welfare reform. It's our view that uh, of all the issues that are discussed, and there's certainly many, that when you go to any city and ask someone on a street corner, uh, ask someone in any neighborhood, uh, ask someone of any party to list the top three issues that are affecting their community, normally crime and violence is at the top of the list. But what of the arguments of root causes and underlying factors? Webb didn't dismiss them. He just seemed to be performing triage. When people are scared to go out of their homes, uh, when we have uh, a person going out trick-or-treating and is, uh, is killed by a 14-year-old, um, or whether a person is shot at a bus stop, uh, what I hear people saying is that they want to stem the safety factor and make their streets safe and then address the long-term issues. Detroit's Dennis Archer and Dallas's Ron Kirk, mayors of America's eighth and ninth biggest cities at the time, supported the crime bill. Black mayors of majority black cities like L.U. Harris of Oakland and Kurt Schmoke of Baltimore supported the crime bill. The only female African-American mayor of a large city, Sharon Sales Belton of Minneapolis, was a huge supporter of the crime bill, stumping alongside Bill Clinton. And I have the utmost confidence in you that you will be able to deliver for the people of this great nation a crime bill that is going to address the fear that we have in our hearts and in our lives. In fact, of the black mayors of America's largest cities in 1994, every single one of them supported the crime bill. Norm Rice of Seattle, Bill Campbell of Atlanta, Kurt Schmoke of Baltimore, Willie Harrington of Memphis, Emanuel Cleaver, Kansas City, Freeman Bosley, St. Louis... Harris of Oakland, Mark Morial of New Orleans, Michael White of Cleveland, Kirk, Archer, Webb, Sales, Belton. Now, let's be clear. They're mayors. Mayors want funding. They will grudgingly trade away some concerns, legitimate concerns, by the way, about the application of the death penalty to get the money that they are desperate for. But they were speaking as one. They were pleading, really, as one. Every prominent African-American mayor 
both African-Americans who were elected statewide, more than two-thirds of the Congressional Black Caucus, were asking for the crime bill to pass, needed the money for the programs, and were saying, yes, we want more police. The historians, writing in the New York Times op-ed, offer this interpretation. Calls for tough sentencing and police protection were paired with calls for full employment, quality education, and drug treatment, and criticism of police brutality. It's not that those demands were ignored completely. It's that some elements were elevated and others were diminished, what we call selective hearing. Well, I ask, who should have been selected? Who should the powerful white leaders have selected to listen to, if not the powerful black leaders? To the extent democracy works, that's how it should work. The white leaders say to themselves, oh, here I am representing the needs and wants of my communities. Who should I turn to doing the same for black communities? Aha, black leaders. It seems like an exercise, not just in selectivity, but wishful thinking to go back and say the decision then should be evaluated as if they had foreknowledge of the next 20 years to have chosen a different process that would have gotten them to a different conclusion, which they say now would have been better. Almost every prominent elected official was in favor of passing the crime bill, which, by the way, did help stem urban carnage. Should the leaders then have listened to the 12 members of the CBC? Well, that would have put them in alliance with a bunch of pro-NRA Democrats who didn't like the ban on assault weapons. It would have also put them in alliance with most of the elected Republicans, and the cities would have gotten nothing because that's how the vote was headed. I guess the historians would say, yes, that would be a better result. No crime bill would have been better. Or maybe they would say a perfect crime bill would have been best. Sort of like a perfect anything would be better than whatever the electoral process yields. If you argue that no black person should vote for anyone who supported the crime bill, you are not only agreeing with Donald Trump, you are arguing that the vast majority, vast, vast majority of the most prominent black people who were living in the realities that necessitated the crime bill were all wrong. We should have used a better process than listening to the actual black leaders. You are literally arguing that the greatest blow that we could have delivered to racism would be to ignore almost every black leader in America. Look, it is legitimate. It is, in fact, urgent to try to address the consequences that the crime bill wrought. It's also, by the way, fair to note that U.S. crime policy should have changed along with the realities of crime rates and incarceration rates, but couldn't change because Republicans controlled at least one house in the legislature or the White House for all but three of the 25 years since 1994. I think the crime bill had some bad outcomes. I think Joe Biden, personally, was overly punitive. If you really want to scandalize yourself, check out the never-passed 1991 biden thurmond Violent Crime Control Act. The Thurmond is Strom Thurmond, and it spends a lot of time listing all the new categories that would be death penalty eligible. So I think it's wrong to totally let Joe Biden off the hook, and I think it's really wrong to take any cues ever from Donald Trump. But it's also wrong, ahistorical, and unfair to say that no black person should support any politician who supported the 1994 crime bill. Because in 1994, almost every black politician supported that very same bill.
And that's it for today's show. PRB Anime and Daniel Schrader are the GIST's producers. They would have been a no vote on Article 10. Cautious yes on 11. TJ Raphael is senior producer of Slate Podcast. She never realized the depth of her strong feelings about the Tenure of Office Act. Would you like to sign up for our newsletter? I think you would. Every Saturday, it comes to your inbox. It gives us a rundown of the shows and the answer to a trivia question. This week's trivia question is, what country's highest point is named after a work by the author of the Sherlock Holmes novels? The gist, to quote Ralph Waldo Emerson, when you strike at the king, you must kill him. To quote Jon Snow, Queens 2. Oompa de peru And thanks for listening.